Welcome, listeners, to a realm where shadows dance and whispers echo. I'm your host, Rick Clifton, and this is Quills and Chills, the podcast that brings you face-to-face with the masterminds behind the macabre. In each episode, we journey into the minds of horror writers and filmmakers to uncover the secrets lurking within their tales of terror. From classic tales to modern nightmares, we'll traverse the corridors of the human psyche and unravel the threads of dread that keep us turning the pages or sitting out there in the dark. Welcome to Quills and Chills. Hello and welcome back to Quills and Chills. I'm Rick Clifton, your host, and today we are talking with author Tanya De Rosario. Tanya is a writer and a visual artist, and she's also the author of four books now and a Lambda Literary Award finalist, or as we like to say here at the show, a Lammy. <laughs> and uh, right. her, her work has won <laughs> prizes from New Ohio Review, the Comstock Review, and Singapore's Golden Point Awards. But today, Tanya is here to talk with me about her latest book, Dinner on Monster Island, which is available February 6th. So welcome to the show, Tanya. Thank you so much, Rick, for having me. It's great to be here. So, Tanya, I usually start by asking my guests to share a little bit about themselves. But you know what? In this particular case, I think... This amazing book of yours does all of that for us. So I did bring some questions, but I think I'm going to take a slightly different approach if you're cool with it. I'd love to just kind of hang out and let's have a conversation. Let's just be buds for a, for a while. So, Brilliant. <laughs> so from the start, I, I just have to say I love your approach to this particular narrative. I think that a collection of essays is so smart and so wonderful. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about what the book's about. Uh, I'd love to also hear a little bit about your creative process and putting this thing together, how you went about curating your your essays for this book. Just give us the, the a brief little overview. Sure. So um, what the book is about, I would say that Dinner on Monster Island is a collection of essays that look at my personal experiences um, growing up queer, brown, um, and fat in a country that has uh, minimal tolerance <laughs> uh, for cert- certain differences socially and um, systemically. Um, in terms of the process, I think the first part of the process was really organic. When I first started, um, I came to Vancouver in 2018. I had lived in Singapore for about 37 years before that. Um, I came to do school as a way of um, being able to, to come to another country and um, I didn't. I came and did an MFA in creative writing, and the very first assignment I got from my very first class was from one of my uh, nonfiction professors, and it involved writing a letter to someone. And uh, my mother had died that same year, and we had a lot of unresolved issues between us when she died. 
um, I'd left my bio family's home a decade and a half prior without telling anyone who lived there that I was not coming back. I had only seen her once mm-hmm. since then, and it was at a funeral. Um, I had basically lived with my mother and her parents. And so, you know, it was a really strange experience. I left one day and then I returned 15 years later and everyone I had left behind was now gone. Um, and that experience was what the letter ended up being about. And that is where the collection started. I didn't know it was going to be a collection at the time. It was just, a, you know, it was just a response to an assignment. Um, but as I took more and more classes with classmates, uh, who were not from where I was, I started to realize that people found a lot of the things I was talking about, I guess, pretty interesting. Something It was something that was, um, especially with regards to things like, oh, there is an entire like national government mandated weight loss program <laughs> for everyone in like oh my God. government I, schools. <laughs> I know. And it was, <laughs> right? That blew me away. I was like, what was it? it was called TAF or something? TAF. Trim, it was called Tough Club, but Trim and Fit spelled backwards, F-A-T. <laughs> Which I do not, I mean, nobody's gonna, I, I, do, I personally do not think it was <laughs> accidental. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I started to realize that actually these, a lot of things I had normalized were actually interesting to um, a lot of people. And I also started to realize that the more I wrote, um, so much of my content dealt with experiences growing up in Singapore, living in Singapore. And I think that is where the seed of the collection started just just in response to assignments i I have to tell you this book dinner on monster island resonates with me as kind of profoundly evocative uh it's 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 very personal uh it it talks about you know honestly i just i thought it was really quite moving it was uh it was it left such an impression on me and it's it's so well, I'm not surprised by this. I've traveled the world. Uh, I've been to many different places. I know that uh, you know uh, the uh, the more the further apart we are, we could not be more uh, similar in ways. But it is striking to me that we grew up in different places in the world, and yet there's so many similarities to your experiences growing up to some of mm. the, some of mine as well, uh, mm. and. Yeah, it's just, it's crazy how much we are the same while also being very different. It's just, it's, it's, it's the beauty of this world, I think. Absolutely. Um, um, <clears throat> as you mentioned, you do sort, uh, you do explore some very challenging themes from body image, queerness, concealing uh, your, your true self and your identity and coming to terms with that identity. And what I love is you make this this reference to the revelation that monsters can manifest in very many different ways. Uh, it offers a very sort of powerful uh, insight and a glimpse into your your upbringing. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you, well, you've done this a little bit, but what motivated you to share these personal stories? Like, uh, what are you hoping that readers will take away from this? Yeah, this is an interesting question because I think there's an assumption that 
the motivation for writing a story and the motivation for sharing a story are the same but I you know I think there is a kind of nuanced difference to that like I I, I think my motivation for writing the story or writing these stories is is pretty clear I just needed um catharsis which is not a hip answer it's not popular it's it goes against the grain of um much preferred conversations around so-called craft where you you write for the sake of you know you write for the sake of writing and for the sake of the craft but I think many people if not most people write because they need to um and I, I wrote because I needed to yeah, right. the catharsis of that is uh, is is I did when I write. I don't write for the sake of telling a story. A lot of times, it is to get things out. It is to get these feelings out. Um, Absolutely. So I can totally relate to that. <laughs> so, how did you go about selecting which ex- essays that you would include uh, in this collection? So, yeah, as you mentioned, the first few essays that. Um went into the collection, uh, not necessarily in the chronology in which they are in the collection, uh, came out of, came from class. And I think once I had five or six pieces in there, I started to realize that this was a collection. It wasn't just kind of disparate stories or disparate essays happening. And when that happened, then I wrote the proposal for the rest of the book. Oh, wow. So I was trying to figure out, oh, we we have a bunch of things here. What's missing to tell a, to tell a fuller story? And I think that's the, yeah, that's the most straightforward way of explaining it, I guess. I started with a bunch of essays. I wrote out a proposal to think about what else I wanted to write. And from that proposal along the way, um, some things got deleted because they overlapped too much with one another. Um, yeah, and that's that's how that happened. Great. You know, you, you talk about your relationship with your mother and her relationship with religion uh, in the book. Um, in particular, you tell a very sort of harrowing story about being gay exercised at 12 years old. Um, <clears throat> I wonder if you could talk a little bit without revealing too much, obviously, but you could talk a little bit about that uh, and, um, you know, the the exploration of your relationship with your mother. I came home from school one day and I got off the bus and my mother was uh, waiting at the bus stop. And firstly, that was strange because I, I usually would just go back to my flat um, by myself, but she was waiting at the bus stop because she wanted to prep me for something. And she had been crying. Something emotional had happened. Um, And she told me that my grandmother had converted from Catholicism to Pentecostalism, which is what we were. And this was very strange to me, firstly, because my grandmother was a very devout Catholic. And for some reason, this really set off some alarm bells <laughs> already. Um, even though I didn't have language, you know, I didn't have language for that at the time. But we went up. And two of my mom's friends were there. And I think a lot of people, like when they read the synopsis or the quips about the book, and particularly with regards to the exorcism, um, 
they think that my mother arranged it like she set it up but honestly I think it was just timing and circumstance because yeah these two people had come over saying that God sent them and they had actually come for my grandmother I'm not going to speak to how genuine (laughs) these beliefs were (laughs) some people genuinely believe they are sent by God um some people are con artists even though I don't know what they would have gained by you know conning my mother in this way but um yeah so they came for that and then it so happened I got back around that time and you know they said they wanted to pray over me as well and so my mother told me to go take a shower and just like change because you know I had had a long day at school and I came out you know quote unquote uh dressed like a boy and this had been something that had already been weighing on my mother's mind and that was something they picked up picked up on as well um for listeners who obviously can't see my facial expressions when I say look like a boy I'm definitely putting that in in quotes (laughs) because that is a meaningless statement (laughs) to be honest um but yeah uh I was told I have the spirit of lesbianism inside of me um which of course as an adult this is like the source of endless jokes I make but um (laughs) and that they were going to I was actually holding back I was like yeah no please don't hold back (laughs) I mean to make a long story short and to save some of the content in the book from being um spoiled the exorcism did not work and therefore I am on this podcast and uh, well, very pleased hall- about hallelujah. it. Hallelujah. <laughs> hallelujah. I will say that. <laughs> so it, it's very interesting. I had mentioned that there are a lot of similarities in your experience growing up uh, and mine and your relationship with your mother is similar in some ways uh, as to my relationship with my father. Um, and we, uh, you know, you've talked about, um, you know, my father, it wasn't a religion thing with my father, but we just, we didn't connect. And mm. the reasons behind that, like I, I stopped talking to him when I was 12 years old. And um, the reasons behind that came, our distance with each other came out many years later after he passed away. And I was never able to actually resolve that with him. Mm. And, um, uh, but I, I, the connection I'm obviously not trying to make it about me, but uh, the connection between the two was just very striking to me. It was like, I, I mm. just, like I said, the book just connected with me on, on a, uh, a almost visceral level to a degree. Mm. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, I'm so, I'm so happy to hear that, but also I'm so sad to show that. <laughs> so, well, my father <laughs> actually tried to come out in the 70s to my mother and she shut it down. And I think wow. as a result of that, uh, you know, I think he um, he retreated back into himself and distanced himself from the rest of us. Now, my mother and I, you know, she knows I'm out and uh, we could not be closer and, and we could not be, That's you know, great. we have a great relationship. But at the time in the 70s, she didn't know. Right. And so. Knowing that and learning that after he passed away, um, I think had I known that before, I wonder if it would have changed our relationship any, but Mm. he he just was a very angry man to me. So, Mm. 
But anyway, we're not here to talk about me, Tanya. <laughs> <laughs> Although I want to hear everything. <laughs> you incorporate a lot of pop culture references in all of your essays, particularly drawing from horror media and culture, right? Uh, mm -hmm. There are many references to cinematic horror and mothers and daughters. And for example, I'm talking about The Exorcist and Carrie. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but the one that I was most uh, like uh, it, impacted by was, uh, you know, your experience watching um, uh, Hideo Nakata's Ringu uh, and how you talk about that impression with uh, with. Sadako Yamamura that and what she left on you and your journey to the realization about how and I love this how we create our own monsters can mm. you elaborate a little bit on the significance of all of these references and maybe shed some light on your thought process and selecting and weaving them into this memoir so a lot of people ask like how I came to horror why I like horror um I think a lot of fans of horror films get the question, you know, what, how can you watch this or why do you watch this? That's a very visceral response sometimes that doesn't, there's no, there's no language to some of, to some of, you know, this stuff. But I think in short, you know, my quippy response is always, why would I not love horror or relate to horror when I lived it um, in this, even if it's in that one, you know, incident that happened to me as a child, my mother literally thought I had demons <laughs> inside of me. I enjoyed horror from a young age as a kid, anything I could sneak to watch. I was not allowed to watch it firstly. So maybe that's another reason I loved it. Same. <laughs> <laughs> right. Same. Yeah. Like the devil's going to get you horror movies. Uh, when you let you, you open yourself up, the, you leave room for the devil to come in when you kind of invite him in, you know, via this medium. Um, but I, yeah, I didn't really have language for why I enjoyed horror until I watched um, Hideo Nakata's The Ring. In a gist, it's about a young woman named um, Sarako. And after being thrown into a well and left to die, uh, the spirit of her rage is imprinted onto a cursed videotape. And once you watch the video, you will receive a phone call um, filled with static. And uh, in seven days, she will find you and she will kill you. You know, she will look at you with that evil eye and your heart stops. And um, what you learn at the end of the film, and I think this is what hooked me, what you learn at the end of the film is that there is no true way to fully conquer her right the only thing you can do to survive is to make a copy of the tape and pass it to someone else so that the curse transfer to transfers to them so in order not to die by the monster's hand you must in some sense become the monster and this was a concept that was really interesting to me and as i began to watch more horror i learned that many um, female ghosts across Asian countries were constructed um, in the same way, kind of treading the thin line between having agency and being oppressed. So on one hand, she was this autonomous character who seeks you know, justice on her own terms and she's all powerful. Um, but on another hand, she was you know, 
these ghosts are reduced to victims of violence while they are alive. And the that agency, that power is only granted in death, in the transformation of um, their identities from victims to villains. And the potential of this duality, the idea that revenge is also justice, that the monster is also the victim, really kind of took hold of my imagination. And um, for me, Sadako came to symbolize really the enduring potential of female rage um, in a world that perpetuates violence against women and against all marginalized genders. Um, and the idea that, you know, her vengeance is also everlasting and inevitable. Um, you know, she's not only the victim, she's not only the villain, she's also the victor. And I think once I kind of articulated this to myself, that's it. I was a horror fan eternal after that i feel like i've strayed from the original question (laughs) no 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 this is great this is great i I actually was just thinking i just love your brain i love i i love you you're amazing (laughs) i i could hang out with you all day oh my god let's do it it's friday (laughs) right (laughs) let's do it drinks after i'll i'll buy um so your your essay about I think it's titled Black Boxes and Penguin Pulp. I found that one to be incredibly relevant to what we see happening now here in the mm. especially here in the US and especially in places like Florida and Texas. Mm. Uh, you know, with the don't say gay bills, the uh, book banning and all the stuff that's happening. Um and you know, one of the things that you are very clear about very early on uh, is you talk about the importance of speaking up and voicing dissent uh, and mm. how maybe even it helps just one person. Mm. And I I, I I try to live my life by that. It's not always easy, especially mm. when it feels like, you know, we're being attacked from all sides. What mm. advice would you give to someone who is just beginning their journey into activism? I don't know that I'm qualified to give anyone <laughs> advice. I always, <laughs> in any in any facet of life, um, I think it's also hard to talk about advice regarding what to do or how to act or how to think when so many things happen in such specific contexts, right? So like... Um, I mean, and by that, I mean cultural context and also all of us having different levels of safety, depending on what our family or home situation looks like. Um, you know, sometimes it's 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 not just that it's not easy to speak up, it's that it's literally not safe to speak safe. up. Right. And I feel that when I'm, you know, when I say, when I talk about the importance of voicing dissent, I'm speaking to those of us in relative, relative, (laughs) important word, relative positions um, of power. I think activism at its core is really about actions that bring about, you know, political or social change. And I think it's important that to remember um, all day, every day that this can and does happen on many different levels, right? many potential spaces for activism offer themselves up to us in our daily lives. And I think we can, you know, start this journey by just learning to be more conscious about our decisions and our thinking and making sure 
Yeah, and it may not mean, the, right? Sorry, I was going to say, sorry. it may not mean just speaking out or whatever. It can be Absolutely. small actions at times, you know? So exactly, precisely. It, yeah. It doesn't mean exactly. standing up on the chair and fighting and, you know, and, and everything. There are different ways to do that. Absolutely. And I think... Um, I think once we start becoming conscious of context and systems, it really even just starts internally, right? Like thinking about the decisions we make and how they fall or don't fall in line with the change that we're trying to bring about. Um, because everything we do is either informed by our acceptance of or resistance to dominant structures. And it's reflected in how we create and care for community, how we support folks with less power than us, how we advocate for change. It doesn't have to be on a huge political level, but change within your office, change within the school you teach at, change at the dinner table. Yeah, exactly. How we learn from folks who are, yeah, who are on the margins. Um, now I can't even remember what I answered your question. <laughs> no, you're, you're great, you're great, you're great. Uh, how, how would you, what suggestion would you have for someone to get started on this journey? I think maybe we've already sort of answered that a little bit, though. It's really just kind of, I think if you, it's that old adage, right? Be the change you want to see in the world. So it kind of starts mm. here, right? Absolutely. So, yeah um i think just consciousness is like consciousness of where our actions and our formed opinions and our view of the world comes from and kind of asking questions about that how do you think one would know uh when we've done enough or if we need to do more when it comes to act activism oh wow i don't think it's I don't think the work ever ends. Basically. I was just going to say that. I, I, mean, <laughs> I, I think it's a trick question because it doesn't, right? And there's never, you, you, I don't know that there's ever enough that you can do because there's always going to be some injustice uh, somewhere. Absolutely. So. I think, yeah, I don't think it's about quantity. I think it's about what is the shade of action that is necessary at this point of time? Because Brilliant. I think like deep down inside, all activists, all activist organizations want their work to one day be obsolete, right? So for example, you want your fight for equitable housing to be obsolete because your goal with this fight is to make sure everyone is housed. Um, but history, you know, speaks for itself. You can spend decades fighting for reproductive rights and all it takes is a bunch of assholes to come into power and wham bam, those can be taken away from you in a fraction of the time it took you to obtain them. So I think it's less about like is when is enough and more like what is necessary now. Because even when you have attained, you know, equity or equality or rights in some area, maybe action for that period of time is maintaining, you know, maintaining that status or continuing to work towards a society that will not accept otherwise. It's I think it's really yep. contextual to time and place. I love that. I love that so much. It's so, so much. Um, <clears throat> can we switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about music? I feel like that was a hard left coming out of activism. <laughs> I wanted to talk about music, but 
but it's it's one of the other sort of recurring things that I, I noticed <laughs> in your in your essays here uh, are how musical artists. There are quite a few musical artists that you talk about, like Radiohead, Alanis Morissette, mm. M- Melissa Etheridge. Uh, you know, all really great uh, artists and their impact and the importance of their work in your life. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, that and the the impact it's had on the different phases of your life. Yeah, music in relation to writing this book was a really weird experience. Like, you know, when I was writing the essays that had were directly related to my time in high school, I made playlists of like songs from the 90s and the more I went through Spotify the more I found music that I had forgotten about so because I had played this some music that I didn't necessarily liked I didn't necessarily like but that brought up a lot of memories but there are also of course the essays where I talk about you know music that was really resonant um, to me and you know some of these artists that you just named and I think music has a way of embedding language into one's psyche right many of us can recall um, lyrics from songs we grew up with at the drop of a hat and I can't recall how to work out fractions <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh my god yes I know like... that came up for me the other day I'm like um Siri Siri how do I do this <laughs> <laughs> I mean I was I had these two things happening at the same time trying to learn math and listening to the radio and one stuck and one did not um exactly yeah music music contains time emotion and memory and you know we can have really different tastes in music but I think that's something that is possibly constant and uh, there are just some songs you know that I the memories reach- embedded into the song and the songs embedded into the memory. Um, there's, you know, there's some music that I can't even listen to without revisiting places of emo- like, you know, revisiting a specific breakup, for example. Like, I may no longer have any romantic feelings for this person, but the song just puts me back in that place. Oh, with- yeah. <laughs> yeah. The emotion well. is decontextualized, yeah. but the emotion is still there, right? Right. And I also have those, yeah. uh, those, same sort of reactions to points in time in your life you know like uh my musical tastes have changed quite a bit over the years and Mm. probably will continue to change but when I go back and listen to a certain type of music that I haven't listened to in 20 years uh Mm. I'm taken back to that time in my life and it's funny I can remember things like oh I forgot all about that good I don't need to remember moving on to the next song so here we go (laughs) yeah that's interesting isn't it it's like time and space because like yeah sometimes a song you haven't heard for a while can bring you back to a particular time but it it can also bring you back to the time that last time you heard it play in a particular space and that also is a a way to access memory and yeah it's it's really i can't think of I see. TikToks. I can't think of another medium that does that. Right. Uh, I I've seen TikToks where they use music to uh, to with Alzheimer patients to bring them back to uh, you know points in time, um, and I think it's such a, a fascinating thing because it's exactly that. It, there's there's no there's nothing else. It's exactly what you said. There's nothing else that can reach inside and pull out those specific mm. uh, memories and feelings and emotions like like uh like a like a great song 
Absolutely. Or, or a not great anymore song. <laughs> as the case may be. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> yeah. In, I I think, I mean, just also as a point of interest, like, you know, I I came to writing through poetry and I came to poetry through music. Um, and I, I realized, you know, a bit like as an adult that, you know, as a teenager, I kept CD sleeves out of the boxes in a little stack and read them like books. And that was my first kind of relationship to poetry and relationship to looking really looking at how writing is created and really thinking about like form and stuff like that i love that so much it's fantastic you know one of the other things i really wanted to sort of make sure to point out is that the you use an abundance of quotes from singaporean authors in dinner on monster island and i feel like i wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about what you feel is the significance of incorporating the passages and sort of the role they play in shaping what you write. Right. So, I mean, like you said, I reference, you know, a lot of music, a lot of pop culture, basically a lot of content that isn't mine. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I realized the further and further I got into this collection um, when I was referencing all the songs of, the songs and films and media of my youth. Wow, I sound really old when I say that. I came to realize how Then I won't entrenched... say it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I won't say it because I'll sound even older. Jesus. <laughs> it's true. Like, I really, like, it's weird to be in a place in life where I'm like, in my youth. Um, yeah, I realized how entrenched in American and North American pop culture um, I was. And um, I mean, as, you know, as a child and as a teenager, and I wanted Singaporean voices whom I love, whose work I admire, whose strength, you know, fortifies me to be um, present in the manuscript because, yeah, no one lives in a vacuum. I'm not this one single voice and I'm part of a creative community there. I'm part of a queer community there. I'm a product of that, you know, community in the sense that everything I embrace about it as well as everything I resist or reject, you know, from there is, that's still a connection. Um, And I think, you know, for readers who kind of read the essays about how things like licensing (laughs) um, and creating content in Singapore works, I think, you know, make artists, writers in Singapore, we, definitely share a particular experience um, that is underpinned, you know, by some of those systems. So it was it was important for me to have Singaporean voices in the book. It's, it's really great. I really love it. Um, with a lot of the things that I do in some of my work, I like to sort of lean uh, lean into our uh, queer history uh, and especially, you know, to a time when it wasn't safe to be us, right? Mm. And it wasn't safe to be out. And I like to sort of uh, visit those uh, that time and and reference it as well. So it's a it's I understand the feeling and the desire to want to sort of include that and why it's important. So mm. I want to talk about your final essay. <clears throat> um, 
in their final essay, Letter to My Mother, you you wrote you write about everything, uh, you know, these intense emotions, but you leave us in a place, which I thought was fantastic, uh, where I don't know that we have clear and final resolution on it. Um, mm. And I'm wondering, I'm trying, what I'm trying to do, I'm sorry, I'm trying to figure out how to say this without revealing too much because I don't want to, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I want to try to, I just, it's really great. And I just kind of thank you. don't want to spoil it for anybody. Um, <clears throat> what, let's see. What do you, what do you want readers to take away from that? What's your intention uh, with, with the way you leave the book? If, if we could, I, again, don't want to spoil it. So I don't know how we dance around that, but I'd love, yeah, I love what you did. I love what you did. Thank you. <laughs> I'm also trying to figure out a way to talk about this without spoiling it. Grief is complicated. When you lose someone you love, you grieve the loss of that person and the loss of that relationship. But when you grieve the death of someone who had a big role in your life because they harmed you, uh, when they were supposed to be taking care of you, you don't necessarily grieve the loss of that person or that relationship. You grieve the relationship that never was and you grieve um, the individual person that never was. And you grieve the things you did not have. And that comes with a lot of anger. It comes with a lot of deep disappointment. And on some level, for many people, I'm sure it comes with some catharsis, uh, which is not a popular thing to say. <laughs> you get catharsis <laughs> from somebody's death. Um, but of course, no one has a right to tell you how you, know, how you feel about that. I, 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 I love that, that you say that everyone, you know, grief is complicated because... Everything that you just explained is exactly what I felt with my father. You know, again, not trying to make this about me. But no, tell me. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just, you know, how I related to it. Uh, and I had a lot of, I feel like I'm going to start to cry. Sorry. Uh, I feel like I had a lot of those feelings come back up. And I, unlike you, I have not dealt with them. And I feel like maybe I should uh, in some way. So it was, it left me hopeful and inspired. And now I'm crying. <laughs> so, oh, anyway. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It's a good cry. It's a good cry. It's a good cry. It's a good cry. I swear. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know whether this helps or makes it worse, but I don't, I don't know if there is a way to, to finally say, oh, I've handled it because, you know, the impact of people who were, you know, supposed to, love us and take care of us in our formative years the impact is whether positive or negative is something that is in us and with us you know our whole lives it's ingrained in a way right so absolutely it's, it's imprinted on your your psyche absolutely so so much of our the way we think or the way we act or the way we think about things is connected to that and at what point you know can you can you say this is not a part of me or it happened because of this or you know it's I don't think that's a wrong way to feel about this yeah exactly yeah so oh my gosh look what you did I'm sorry <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> oh my god now we're best friends <laughs> like, what happened? that was quick <laughs> oh my god I love it so it's fantastic 
Uh, all right. <clears throat> I'm being mindful of our time here because, you know, like I said, I could hang out with you all day long. Um, but Tan- <laughs> <laughs> Tani, what's next on the horizon for you? What are you working on? Oh, this question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hate it. I hate it too. I hate to ask it, but everybody wants to know. Okay. Um, what am I working on? My normal quippy uh responses, <laughs> my anger issues. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's perfect. I love it. I love it. Maybe that am... should be the title of your next book, My Anger Issues. <laughs> oh my god, that is the book that will just keep on giving. That is the, that is a volume. That is uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly infinitum. <laughs> infinitum. It's great. Yeah. I am working on a collaborative project with um, a wonderful illustrator uh, named Marion Churchland that we are keeping under wraps for now. Um, But that's definitely something I'm excited about. All right. So last bonus question, not related to your book, but I'm going to ask you, I I ask this of everybody. Um, I'm going to ask you to write a short horror story for me right now on the fly using three random words <laughs> nothing ever changes i love it <laughs> oh my god sold 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 <laughs> that is uh, <laughs> that is terrifying how quickly that came to me what a great open for a book though right like very first line oh nothing ever changes <laughs> and then what a good prompt like to just give to people <laughs> continue this story oh boy yeah. so my hope is to one day take all of these three three word three random words and put it together in uh, <gasps> a paragraph form from all of these different uh, authors and writers and, and see what we Some get poem. So. <laughs> exquisite so. corpse yes <laughs> so uh, all right, so the book is called uh, Dinner on Monster Island. It is available February 6th. And as we always like to say here at Quills and Chills, please, please support your local bookstores. So, uh, Tanya, uh, are you on social? If so, I'm happy to link those socials in our show notes and also in our social media posts. Thank you so much. I super appreciate that. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Tani DiRosario. My Instagram is a bit more complicated, so maybe we can write that just <laughs> write that down in the notes. I will do that for you. You got it. Uh, so, Tani, thank you so, so much for coming to talk to me today. I, I cannot tell you how much I absolutely love and adore this book and how affected by it I am. So I, I just appreciate it. And uh, I, I highly recommend anybody uh, out there that wants to take a, a trip through... Uh, your emotional past please do it <laughs> it's, so, it's so it's it just it's really great i can't say enough about it <clears throat> thank you so much rick that's like thank you so much that is really generous and really kind uh and i'm so you made me connected. cry you made me yeah, cry so... <laughs> <laughs> it's so good no it's great it's all good all right <laughs> thanks everybody we'll see you guys next time Thanks for joining me on another episode of Quills and Chills. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the mysterious and the haunted. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to support us by subscribing on your preferred podcast platform and leaving us a rating or review. Because your feedback helps keep those chills running down both our spines. 
and feel free to share the show with your favorite fellow horror enthusiasts. Also, if you guys have any spooky stories, strange encounters, or paranormal experiences of your own, I'd love to hear them. Reach out to me on social media or email me at quillsandchillspodcast at gmail.com. Who knows? Your story might end up on a very special episode. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I will see you back here next time on Quills and Chills. Bye, y'all.